Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It is such an incredible privilege to get to be with you here this morning. I'm told this is the rowdy uh, group here this morning, so I'm a little intimidated, but, but I'm going forward. Um, it's just great to be with you. You know, I have, um, I feel like I've been trying to follow Jesus myself for quite some time, and I have no idea, of course, where each of you might be in that journey, that journey of of trying to seek to follow Jesus into life. But a number of years ago, I found myself challenged by a really very fundamental question, and that was simply this. Are Jesus and I really interested in the same things? I mean, really. Because I know what it is that I'm passionate about, what I'm really interested in, and other people kind of know those things too. And you probably have your lists of things that you're passionate about, and those close to you know about that. But what if we, just this morning, set all those things aside for a minute so we could ask from first principles, but what is God passionate about? I tend to, of course, think that what God is really interested in is the things I'm interested in, but what if we just set all that aside for a minute and asked, but what is God most passionate about? Because what I'd like to have us focus on this morning is, is upon two of the more sometimes unfamiliar passions of God, and that's his passion for the world and his passion for justice. So first, God's passion for the world. I grew up in Sunday school where I was taught this memory verse, John 3:16, that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's a way of saying that the whole incarnation, the coming of Jesus, was inspired by God's passion for the world. Now, of course, by world, he doesn't mean like the actual like dirt globe, right? I mean, I think he loves that. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Uh, but it's really all the people on that globe and all the bazillions of people, like stretched across all these confusing continents and cultures this is what God loves. He loves the world. Now, by contrast, what am I passionate about? What am I interested in? Well, I can tell you that every single day I am totally passionate about me. I love me. I'm fascinated by me, like every single day. I haven't had a day yet where I had to wake myself up and say, hey, Gary. Think about yourself today now. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't forget yourself while you're so preoccupied with the needs of other people, right? So this is more narrow, obviously, than I should be, and I've been to church enough times to, to hear that. So I'm trying to open up the borders of my heart, and on a really good day, I will start to find my heart extending love and compassion to everybody in the world who's in my immediate family. And that's actually a pretty good day in my household, where I'll extend more love and compassion to my wife and four kids than I do to myself. And they usually circle that day on the calendar. <laughs> Pray it might happen next year, maybe, have that day. And then I might have an even larger sort of spiritual experience and find myself with this really expanding heart that extends love and compassion to everybody in the world that I like and who likes me and who is like me. 
And this then becomes my world of passion and energy and focus. It's kind of this little shriveled world of me and mine. Now, I'm sure none of you can relate to that sort of thing at all, but, the, but I do think that Jesus finds that just pretty natural. It's totally understandable, I think. But I don't think everything that's natural and understandable is necessarily godly. So even if we're not there yet, maybe we can at least agree together this morning upon what the goal is. And the goal, I think, is to have a heart that's becoming more like the heart of God that shares something of his love and passion for the world. Now, this did uh, come home to me in a, a very personal and powerful way way back in 1994 when, as, um, as was mentioned I was sent on loan to this little country in Africa uh, called Rwanda in 1994. Um, you might remember this horrific genocide broke out in which 800,000 people were murdered in eight weeks' time. Think about 9-11 and what an incredible trauma that was to the country. But imagine that happening three times a day, every day, for eight solid weeks. And that's the Rwandan genocide. And after it was all over, the international community wanted to bring the leaders of the genocide to justice. And so I was sent over to be the leader of the UN's genocide investigation. And all murder investigations just begin with where the bodies are. And overwhelmingly, the bodies were in churches. Because the Tutsis had run to the churches for protection. But then their Hutu neighbors would just wade into them and they just hacked them all to death. And so I was given a list of about 100 different mass graves and massacre sites, and we would just go every day and process through the, through the bodies. And it was an unspeakably horrible experience. The most difficult part of it, actually, though, for me, uh, was having to interview the survivors, and especially the kids who had survived some of these massacres. And I remember on one particular day, I had to interview a little eight-year-old girl who had survived one of these massacres. She had actually lay amongst the dead bodies for about three days. And so I'm sitting across from her at this little table at a nearby school, and I'm trying to get her story from her. And the first thing you would have noticed about her was the first thing I noticed, which was really just how beautiful she was. She just had these eyes that still, still had, had life and spark in them. And then she would say some things and make herself laugh. And then these white teeth would just burst across her face. And she was, she was just gorgeous. And I remember looking into the face of this little girl when it occurred to me in a way, honestly, I had never thought of before, that the maker of the entire universe intended that this one little eight-year-old Rwandan girl should exist. And not only that, but he intended that she should be with him forever. And he wanted this particular little just eight-year-old Rwandan girl from a country I had barely ever heard of. He wanted her to be with him forever so badly he was willing to give up his own son to be tortured and murdered to make sure that this one, this one would be with him forever. 
And suddenly I'm just blown away by the cosmic significance of this one little eight-year-old Rwandan girl. And yet I also knew from the, pe- the pink machete scars across the back of her head and her neck that she was just about a millimeter of a machete blow away from being part of that huge pile of corpses that we had just been sorting through. And I also realized that 800,000 other Rwandans who were just as precious to God as this little girl, they could all just drop off the face of the earth, right, in one summer in 1994. And as an American Christian, it wouldn't really affect my day at all. It was until I was sent over to Rwanda at the end of the genocide, I, like other Americans, just experienced the summer of 1994 without a speed bump. And then it occurred to me, as an earnest follower of Jesus, that there was a significant difference, right, between the way Jesus was regarding the world and the way I was regarding the world. And honestly, I just didn't want to be that far away from what really mattered to him. So then it's been this earnest journey of mine to try to open up the borders of my heart, right, beyond this this shriveled world of just me and mine, and to try to share something of his love and compassion and interest in that world. But that's also been interesting because as you go into that world and you try to share something of the love of Christ with that world, what do you think is probably the most difficult thing for people in our world to believe about the Christian faith? I think it's simply the idea that God is good because they're in so much pain. You know, there's 10,000 kids just today that are going to die because their parents can't get them enough food. And as you're watching your kid expire from your inability to just even get them some food, like, how are you somehow supposed to believe that there's a good God in the universe? Or the billion people who today have no access to medical care, right? I'm not talking about medical care like MRIs. I'm talking about, like, antibiotics. And their kids are dying just because they can't get an antibiotic, which, of course, the world has bazillions of antibiotics, but, but they don't get them. A billion people are in that place. And how are they supposed to somehow believe, as their children are suffering in these ways, that God is good? Or the tens of millions of people who are displaced from their homes now because of war and the refugee crisis, honestly, how are all these people somehow supposed to believe that God is good? I used to think about it and think, well, what is God's plan for making it believable that he is good to so many of these people who are hurting so much in our world? And then it turns out the answer in the Bible is pretty surprising because it turns out that we're the plan. And a little more surprising, there is no other plan. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, his followers in in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the light of the world. We think of Jesus as being the light of the world, and so he is. But he says to us, you're the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men and women that they will see your good works. And then they'll give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
This is why the Apostle Paul says one of the most amazing things to me in all of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says that God is making his appeal to the world through us. Almighty God is making his appeal to the world through his people. So like if anybody woke up this morning wondering about the significance of their existence, right, honestly, the maker of the universe has decided to put his reputation, his character on the line in the world through his people. Now, we might think like this is the worst plan that God like ever came up with. And, uh, and there's, I think, some reason to think that, right? But we can't argue with what he chose as the plan. And so for 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to make it believable that God is good by going to those who are in need and showing them the goodness and love of God. And so for heaven's sakes, if people are starving and don't have food, Christians can go to them and share theirs and help them. And if others are suffering because they don't have antibiotics or access to healing care, then Christians can go and be part of the healing. And if others are suffering because they don't have mere shelter to even protect them, then, uh, then Christians can help them with those things. And, or if kids don't even have, you know, the basic things to go to school, we can help out with those backpacks so they can. And when Christians do this, they see the body of Christ, which is what we're called, they see the body of Christ actually show up. Oh, and then it becomes believable to them that God is good. But it's interesting because there's another category of people in our world who are suffering. And it's interesting because they're not suffering because they don't have access to the gospel or because they don't have food or because they don't have doctors or they don't have shelter. These are the people who are suffering because of the intentional abuse and oppression of other people. Other people intend to hurt them. These are called the victims of injustice in our world. Now, I generally find that the word injustice is an almost entirely useless word in our culture now, especially in America, because like everything's injustice and nothing's injustice and words have no meaning, right? And I learned that in a sophomore year in college and so on. And I find particularly as an American, like I pretty much can feel like I'm the victim of injustice pretty much every day, in fact. I was at the grocery store the other day and... Uh, Vicious, vicious thing happened. I'm, I'm in the uh, the express lane, right? And because uh, I'm in a hurry, I got things to do, and I'm always in the express lane. But there's rules about the express lane, and probably in your grocery store, right? This is a rules-based regime in the grocery store, and in my place, it's like ten items only. And there's a big sign, ten items only. I'm there, got my ten items, not eight, not nine, ten items. So I'm. The guy in front of me, <laughs> totally 13 items. Like, I can count him. He's like totally, you know, blocking up the express lane. He's totally breaking the law. I'm a lawyer, and I want to, like, sue this guy because, like, I'm going to get justice in America, right? And I... <laughs> well, just so you know, when the Bible talks about injustice, this is not what we're talking about. It's just not. Felt like it, but it's not. Injustice in the Bible is actually a particular kind of sin. It's about the abuse of power. 
in any collection of human beings, some people are going to have more power and some people have less. And so the question always is, what do the people with more power do with it? And when people use their power to take from other people what God intended for them, their life, their liberty, their dignity, the fruit of their love and their labor, and those things are just taken away by someone who's stronger just because they can, God calls this the sin of injustice. This is the sin that King David committed, you'll remember, when he abused his power as king to take another man's wife. And then he abuses his power as king to take that man's life. In a lot of circles, we just turn this entirely into a story about adultery, but it's really a story about the abuse of power. And the prophet Nathan has to go confront the king who's abusing his power as king to take from others. This is why in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them, but on the side of the oppressor was power. So what does this kind of injustice look like in our larger world today, this world that God loves so much? I think, I hope we're familiar with some of the ways in which this injustice takes forms within our own communities, within our own families, within our own backyards. But what does this look like in the larger world? Well, in 1997, I left my job at the U.S. Department of Justice. I had been a prosecutor doing mostly cases of police brutality here in the United States. And I left to join some other friends to form this organization called International Justice Mission. And we're a collection of Christian lawyers and criminal investigators and social workers who take on cases of individual abuse and oppression in very poor communities around the world. Now, what you should picture is about 20 different offices uh, across the developing world and teams of local Christians. So not uh, sort of uh, Americans like paratrooping in to address these things, but local Cambodians or Kenyans or Bolivians, Christian lawyers and investigators and social workers taking on these individual cases and trying to rescue the victims from the abuse, bring the bad guys to justice, and provide long-term aftercare for the survivors. And so over these 20 years now, I've gotten a pretty clear idea of what injustice looks like in our world today. And I'll never forget meeting this little boy named Kumar in India. Kumar lived in a very poor rural area, and when he was five, his, his parents died. And by the age of eight, he had been trafficked into a brick factory where he was simply working as a slave. There were about 70 others held as slaves inside this brick factory. And this is the way Kumar lives his life. He just wakes up in the morning, and he makes and carries bricks for 12 to 14 hours a day, 17 days a week. He doesn't go to school. He doesn't play. He works like an animal seven days a week. And he will do this his entire life. It's estimated that there are nearly 15 million people held in slavery in India alone. In fact, it will be interesting, I think, to you to, to know that the data now shows that there are more people held in slavery in our world today, in 2017, than in any other time in human history. And so the question is, how today for Kumar and for the millions, tens of millions of people held in slavery today in our world, how are they supposed to somehow find it believable that God is good? How is that supposed to be plausible? Or what about Alina? I met Alina in the Philippines. She was 11 years old when 
this man brutally raped her. And the thing that made it just so crushing is the man who committed this assault was actually the chief of police in her town. We work in communities around the world where up to 40% of girls are victims of rape or attempted rape by the age of 14. There is an epidemic of sexual violence against women and girls, against the poor, in the poorest communities in the developing world. And so the question is, how is Alina and how are these other girls somehow supposed to believe there's a, a God of the universe that loves them and is good and knows them? Or Jyoti, she's a 16-year-old teenage girl I met in India. She also lives in a poor rural area, very earnestly was trying to help her family sort of survive. And one day these women came and said, hey, Jyoti, why don't you come with us? We can get you a job in Mumbai, the big city, and uh, then you can make some money and send it home to your family, and it'll be a huge help. And uh, so Ernest Jyoti goes with these women, but on the way there, they give her some tea that is drugged. She falls unconscious, and they actually take her to the red light district, and they sell her into a brothel for about 250 bucks. She's stuffed into this underground room underneath the brothel, and she's just beaten for three days with plastic pipes and electrical cords and metal rods until she's forced to provide sex to the customers there. She's got a service between 20 and 30 men a day, seven days a week, never let outside of that brothel. And UNICEF tells us that there's about 2 million children held in forced prostitution in our world today. So again, just the question I'm asking is, how is Joe T in that place of darkness somehow supposed to believe that there's a good God? And how are also these other millions of kids in that situation supposed to find that plausible? In fact, how does God regard all of this massive suffering and hurt in our world? This is always a challenging question for me. And so I'm, I'm really glad that one of the nice things about the scripture is it doesn't shirk the question. One of the uh, passages that I came across when I was actually in Rwanda in the midst of the uh, genocide investigation, which I'm sure I would have read uh, sometime growing up in church, but it was Psalm 10, which just is this powerful confrontation and cry to God like, where are you? It starts out, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak. They are caught in the schemes that he devises. And it goes on to explain, he lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent, blah, blah, blah. It's this incredibly vivid description of the violence in the world. But then listen to the affirmation in verses 17 and 18. It says, you, O oh Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals never strike terror again. Or Psalm 35.10 puts it this way. Who, O oh Lord, is like you? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them. You rescue the poor and needy from those who would rob them. Over and over again in the scripture, you see clearly how God regards all this abuse. He hates it, and he wants it to stop. That's the heart of God. But that has always just raised another question with me, which is, well, that's great, God, that you want it to stop, but what's your plan for actually stopping it? 
And once again, the answer from the Bible is a little surprising. As it turns out that we're the plan. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, O woman, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice. To do justice. To love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Or Isaiah 117 makes it as clear as we could ever want it to be. What does it say again? <laughs> Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Maybe the thing that makes it even more simple is Jesus' simple call to do unto others as you'd have done unto you. So if you were Kumar, if you were uh, Alina, or if uh, you were um, my last story, Jorti, what would you want someone to do for you? One of the things that's so hard about this, though, is that we hear that we're the ones who are called to the work of justice. And if you're like me, man, you hear these stories and these statistics, and you can just feel bolted to your chair with despair, right? It's like, okay, this was a perfectly great Sunday until I went to hear Gary at church. <laughs> and now, like, the whole world is just one, like, crap bag. And um, <laughs> thank you all very much. <laughs> great Sunday. And God's plan is us. Wow, what a crappy plan that is. I mean, right? I mean, God, we're really quite good at this evangelism thing. And if you want us to feed the hungry and like the doctors and stuff like that, like we're pretty good at that. But like the violence, I don't know. Like where's the other team for that? Yeah, where is that team? You're that team. We are that team but we feel so paralyzed and powerless. And in those moments, I think it's so helpful. Oh my gosh, so helpful to remember the ways in which the disciples felt exactly the same thing when Jesus asked them to do things. And one of the best examples of this that I love so much is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. I love this because, first of all, of course, Jesus has been teaching for a long time, right? So everybody's hungry. And so the disciples who are just brilliant they come up with the idea of how to solve the problem. And they say, hey, Jesus, why don't you send everybody home so they can get themselves fed? So this would have been the story of how 5,000 people went home and fed themselves. But I think Jesus thought this wasn't going to be a very interesting story. And so he says, no, let's, let's do something different. I know you guys feed them all. But the great thing about the disciples is that they're always so super patient to explain to Jesus what he clearly doesn't understand about these situations. <laughs> And they say, oh, Jesus, we would love to do that. But there's 5,000 hungry people. And there's only five loaves and two fish. How could we possibly meet the need? It would take a half year. I'm sorry. At first they say, it would take a half year's wages to be able to feed everybody. Well, this is super smart, but Jesus then um, asked them, well, what do you have? Instead of just accepting that it's impossible, he asked them, what do you have? So this is when they bring forward the little boy with the sack lunch from his mom, right? That's packed with five loaves and two fish. And this is presented as the corporate resources that are then supposed to meet this massive need. And this is when the apostle Andrew enters the discussion because he has a... Um, a graduate degree from one of the fine 
Chicago universities here, and uh, he's sort of the intellectual in the group, and so he looks at the five loaves and two fish and the 5,000 hungry people, and he says, what are these among so many? And honestly, this would be my inclination in these moments, because I went to college too, and uh, I took a math class, and uh, you got 5,000 hungry people, and you got five loaves and two fish. And honestly, if you were as sophisticated as I am, and if you really looked at the deeper sociological roots of this situation, <laughs> you'd really see there's nothing for us to do but to sit in the paralysis of despair. <laughs> but what does Jesus say? He simply says, give it to me. What do you have and will you give it to me? And in that moment, Jesus takes responsibility for the miracle and proceeds to feed 5,000 people to overflowing. You notice that Jesus doesn't ask the disciples if they have enough. He doesn't ask them to do the miracle themselves. He simply asks them, well, what do you have and will you give it to me? And can I just share with you that this is what I personally have witnessed for the last 20 years at IJM, that if the people of God will simply feel the pain of these situations and come to God and offer what they have, he does the miraculous. You know that Kumar is no longer held in that viciously violent brick factory where 70 other people were toiling every day as slaves. IJM's local Indian investigators were able to find where they were being held. They were able to mobilize a raid with the local police, able to get Kumar and all 70 of the other slaves out, get them into a two-year freedom school so they can now stand on their own two feet. And Kumar, he's able to get back to school. Turns out he's brilliant. He actually eventually comes back to work for IJM as an intern. And he's now helped us bring rescue to hundreds of others who have been in slavery. And here's what I can tell you. Amen. What Kumar would tell you is that he knows there's a good God because he saw God show up for him in the hands and feet of God's people. And so now that's what his joy is to do for others. And likewise for Alina, she no longer has to be just crushed by the way the bully in her community can just do what he wants with impunity. IJM's local Filipino team was able to take on her case, get that brutal police chief removed from office, and he's now serving a very long jail term for all of the abuses that he's committed in that community, which changes the whole calculation then about what the bullies can get away with. And now Alina has been able actually to go on to college. She uh, has been studying communications. She's now one of the leading voices fighting violence against women and girls in her country. And what she will tell you is that, and what she loves to tell you, is that she knows there's a good God who saw her. And now she loves to share that story with other uh, women and girls in her community. And likewise for Joti, she is not being serially raped inside that brothel anymore. Our IJM team was able to infiltrate that darkness lead a police raid and get her out and get her to a place of Christian aftercare where eventually she came to know Jesus as her personal savior, which is a phrase that had a certain kind of meaning when I was in church growing up. And of course, she trusts that God will take care of her 
and allow her to be with him forever because of what Jesus has done. But not only that, but it's not an abstraction about what's going to happen in eternity. It's a way in which Jesus showed up in the body of Christ inside her nightmare and got her out. And so now she loves to be able to tell the truth about God to others. And she actually came back to us to say, I know where other kids are being held in forced prostitution. And she led us on a second police raid, and we rescued seven more kids out of this abuse. And one of those kids who was rescued was a girl named Kalindi. And then Kalindi said, you know, I know where even more kids are being held. And she led us to another brothel, to an underground dungeon underneath the brothel, where on this day we were able to bring 24 of these girls out from this place of just unspeakable abuse and humiliation. And this was possible because the body of Christ just showed up for Jyoti. And then Jyoti decided she would show up for Kalindi. And then Kalindi decided she would show up for these girls. And this is a picture of the light of the gospel going into the darkest, most violent places in the world and making it possible for people to find it believable that God is good. Now, what is... What does this have to do with us? One of the things that I've always been a little bit tickled by when I think about the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is always like, why did Jesus do this the way that he did? Right? Because if you just have like Jesus presented with a problem, he's teaching, and now everybody's hungry, but he's God, right? So why not just, I don't know, just dump manna on everybody, like, poof, manna, and then, you know, eat up, and we'll get back to the teaching, everybody, come on. I mean, why did he do it the way that he, he did? This whole, like, you know, no, you guys feed him. I think he did it for just one reason. I think he wanted to give one little boy a very cool day. <laughs> right? Because the boy goes home to tell his mom, who, who packed the lunch, right? The story, like, guess what Jesus did with my lunch today, Mom? He fed 5,000 people. Do you imagine that that boy will ever in his life forget that day? And imagine the choice that was presented to him in some moment there where he could have just gone away to just eat his own lunch, right? Could totally have done that. And he had a full, would have had a full stomach, but a very small day. And did Jesus have to have the lunch in order to do the miracle? Or did he maybe just love that little boy so much that he wanted to say, wait, wait, wait. Look what I can do with your lunch today. I think what this suggests for us is a couple of things. Number one, perhaps a rediscovery of God's passion for the world beyond our little world of me and mine. And perhaps a rediscovery of God's passion for justice and the struggle against violence in the world. What does God have for us in that? And specifically, IJM exists as an organization really to connect the people of God to the struggle for violence. And we've set up a table outside there. I just invite you to go and visit. If this stirs your heart at all, like go out there, join us as a freedom partner, which is one of the ways every month to bring to bear your resources and your voice and your prayers to to help us in the struggle and make it actually possible. Because all these rescues for Kumar or Alina 
joy to you, all that's possible because the people of God rally to the work. So if this has any interest or just like yearning for you, just go visit and consider that. But in all of this, I think the larger invitation for everyone here at Soul City is just not to miss out on God's invitation. Like, why in a world of so much suffering and hurt and need, honestly, why have you and I been given so much? By way of an answer, I I will confess that when I was growing up as a kid, I always wanted to be a really great football player. And sadly, I, I, I turned out to be kind of a bad football player. But, but very sweetly, I had two older brothers who would sit me down and explain to me why I was a bad football player. And they would say, well, Gary, see, you're small, but you're slow. And, <laughs> and that, was, that was helpful in an odd way. And so, of course, what I'd do is, is I would go to the gym to work out, right, to try to get bigger, just so I wouldn't get crushed so badly all the time. And so I'd, I'd go out there and work out in the gym, and nothing would ever happen to me, but I would, I would go work out anyways. And, and I'd be working out like crazy, and I'd always look over. And in, in, in one section of the gym were always the bodybuilders. Do you have any of these guys in your gym? I mean, and they're always in their, like, their special place over there, and they're just, they're, they're like, huge, right? I mean, like... Huge chest and neck and arms and legs and oh my gosh. And I used to just, I used to look at all that muscle mass right? and all that strength and all that power. And I used to just ask, but for the bodybuilder, like what's it all for? <laughs> it's for posing. And the only time all that strength and power is ever brought to bear is there's the crisis in the kitchen, right? And the jam jar is stuck in there. And it, and it palp up in the jam jar. That's it. My prayer for us and for Soul City, oh my gosh. That in a world of so much suffering and hurt and need that we will not be left opening jam jars but that God will rescue us from all things that are just too small. Rescue us from all things of fear and lead us out with courage into a world that's yearning to see the goodness of God through us. Will you pray with me? Kind Father, thank you for your gentleness and kindness and patience with which you allow us to know you more deeply. Father, we do ask for your grace now that you would just help us to to trust you enough for that next step that you, that next good step today that you may be inviting us into to follow you in your work of justice in the world. And we ask that you would just allow us to abide with you in all peace and joy in that that you would rescue us from all things of fear and things that are just too small. May all of this, God, go to the glory of your name and the advance of your kingdom in the world. In the name of Jesus, amen.